Hello, I'm Angela Barnes, and I've just snuck on here to tell you that We Are History, the less than serious podcast hosted by me and John O'Farrell, has joined the Podmasters gang. And this is great news for us because not only are Podmasters purveyors of excellent podcasts, but neither John or I have ever been in a gang before, so we're obviously thrilled to bits. We Are History's seventh series will be launching very soon, but if you can't wait, you can listen right now to our entire back catalogue of 80 or so eclectic episodes. We bring you the most interesting stories we can find from the past, so have a listen if you'd like to know whether Vlad the Impaler's anger issues really earned him that nickname, or how a notorious family from Essex ended up declaring an independent country on a platform in the North Sea. Or maybe how a dead homeless Welshman changed Britain's fortunes in World War II. So that's We Are History. It might not change the world as much as the Black Death did, but it is a little bit funnier. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The Scottish Campervan of Podcasts. High spec, awkward and not going anywhere. On today's show, we ask why the King wants to mar a weekend of low-key boozing by asking us to pledge allegiance to him. The local elections are here. Who'd want to be a councillor? Answer, our guest. And does local government need an almighty shake-up? Plus, in the extra bit, Britons are planning to retire later, just like our new King and Aerosmith. Who should pack it in and who do we want to stick around forever? I'm Roz Taylor. Let's meet the panel. Ian Dunt is a columnist and author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, which I just keep seeing in every bookshop everywhere. Hi, Ian. Quite right. That's because I actually go to those bookshops myself with a variety of weaponry. <laughs> and go, you fucking put that back, mate. You put that back on the desk. <laughs> Everyone must see it. I hear you've given up on streaming. How are you getting your music these days? No. <laughs> I love the, the, the questions I get asked on this podcast. It's just, Ian, what did you tweet about last? <laughs> what you do it? I haven't. No, I still have my, I still have my uh, Spotify thing. But I buy uh, this. Came, this was just me complaining that basically I think I'm going to have to give up on the video aspects of this stuff and go back to DVDs. And I'm a bit. I feel a bit oppressed by just the, the endlessness of the content that is sort of everywhere, especially on music apps and on video apps, but it never stops. There's, you don't have that sense of, I am choosing to put this thing on right now. You don't have the sense of it being a beautiful object in its own right that you would keep for a while. Um, and most importantly, I, I think that I think stream, video streaming felt liberating at first. Like, I don't have to go anywhere. I can just have it tonight if I want to watch it tonight. But very quickly, we're realizing what the limitations are. And if it is a film that is in any way off the beaten track, it is, you will almost never find it on Amazon or on Google. I don't have Apple, so I can't tell you about that. It's, so actually, you're really very limited to really quite mainstream fare. And you don't even have to go very far off piece to find yourself not being able to watch it. So I'm starting to get a little bit sick and tired of it. But of course, like as soon as I mentioned this to the missus, I was like, I think I'm going to get DVDs again. She's like, well... Not in this tiny London flat. You're not going to. So there are limitations on the plan. I accept that. So you're basically going to hang around secondhand shops. You know, those ones that always have tons and tons of DVDs and pick up your fix there. And then once you've watched it, you're going to take them back. So, you know. Oh, no, you can't take it back. No, no, we can't be dealing with that. No, no, no. no, but You you... have to keep it. No. Oh, I see. This is where the domestic dispute comes from. I'm incapable of putting away any kind of cultural item whatsoever. Do you still have all your CDs out? No, 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 I don't. I don't. But I have the LPs. 
And most importantly, I have all the comics, and comics are not an easy thing to store. So basically, the house is now like a, a museum of childhood, <laughs> which is still the stuff that I'm interested in looking at now. Hannah Fern writes for The Independent and The Eye Paper. Hi, Hannah. Hello. You wrote about people taking on 40-year mortgages recently. How can this possibly be feasible unless you work until you're in your 70s, which I suppose we might have to? I mean, that's part of it, yes. Uh, (laughs) Banks are expecting us to be working into our 70s now. These are mostly being offered to people in their late 20s and early 30s. So actually they are within their expected retirement um, period or period of work, sorry, pre-retirement. And actually, in fact, and this might surprise you, it shocked me, There are many lenders out there who will now lend up to age 80. And this tells you what's going on in the housing market. This came about because I started looking into the question of why are there still so many first-time buyers when the the market is absolutely insane, prices are so high, but everybody predicted that there would be a huge drop in the number of first-time buyers post-pandemic because of the price rises in recent years, and that hasn't happened. And the answer to why that hasn't happened is because renting is so unattractive it's so expensive and ugly and you know you end up with all these awful problems with landlords private landlords who aren't equipped to manage their properties very well and so people have that urge to get to buy still and so lenders are just now responding to that urge by making sure the terms are so long that the repayments are low enough for them to manage each month um it is a quite a a a troubling suggestion that this is how we solve it rather than actually building more houses the idea is that you shouldn't ever actually be paying them over 40 years, that you overpay as your wages rise, uh, as you go through life, that you maybe you move house and when you move house, you reduce the term as part of that or your life circumstances change that you may inherit something or bonus at work, whatever. Um, But the thing is that's really concerning is that actually since they've become so popular with first time buyers, there are actually quite a lot of what they call second steppers or, you know, people making their second or third move, taking them out as well. And they are running up to age 75, but they don't have as many years left to have these changes that would reduce the term. Um, And at the same time, I didn't write about this, but I noticed this week what's coming back is the 100% mortgage, which were really common before the the 2008 crash. Most people who bought before that time were buying on 100% mortgage. Um, So, But the two combined, which may now happen, is quite a dangerous prospect. Ben Walker is a senior data journalist for The New Statesman. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thank you for having me once again. Well, you've been standing as a Labour candidate for the council in Chester. How's that been going? Um, Exhausting. It it, it (laughs) takes over your life in such a way that uh, perhaps we don't appreciate. You know, there's a wonderful book by Why We Get the Wrong Politicians by Isabel Hardman about why we do get the wrong politicians and the amount of work you have to do and the life you have to sacrifice really the the, the destruction it has on relationships and just everything it, it it's all consuming in such a way um i nevertheless meeting people and i don't know if you're if you're a bit of an extrovert like like i am it, you're having the time of your life really what's the most surprising thing you've heard on the doorstep i don't know about the most surprising thing but the willingness people the willingness of people to just have a conversation and like almost talk about their most personal things to someone who is after their vote probably might represent them in council um it's very humanizing it's it's very i don't know this is not a sub story this isn't this isn't a stop story podcast but i uh, uh, just just meeting people and getting them having them feel, allowing them to feel like they can tell me you know their problems and issues and me to just be a sort of like a listener that's yeah it's 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 it, long story short it's humanizing that's it 
Well, that sounds great. I mean, usually when the councillors come around to my doorstep, I just whinge about the dustbin collections and stuff. But it sounds like you're getting into a much deeper place with people. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't advertise. See, this is the thing. Um, you, you introduced me as a data journalist for the New Statesman, and I'm also a Labour candidate. I don't promote, I don't, I don't, I'm not like high key Labour, I'm more low key me. So, when I, so I'm introducing myself as opposed to this is your Labour team. No, hello, I'm Ben Walker. I would like to be your councillor. That's that's how I do it. Uh, I, I suppose that's you know owing to ten years of running Britain Elects, where I can't really talk about my personal politics, and nor should I really, because when I when I do Britain Elects, I am as objective as possible. But allow me to have some personal politics at least. Well, I wish you were standing in my uh, ward. That's all I can say. <laughs> Before we start, don't forget to clear your diaries for the next Oh God, What Now live happening in London on Wednesday the 24th of May at the Leicester Square Theatre. I will be hosting a dazzling selection of stars in the heart of London's Theatreland, our own Alex Andreu, Arthur Snell of Doomsday Watch and making her live debut, Marie Leconte. We will be reading the entrails of British politics for your entertainment and it will be an evening of great fun. Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com and Patreon people get a discount, of course, just check your inboxes. Put on your theatre wear and come on down. We'd love to see you. Now, someone asked me last week on Podmaster's Question Time how a Republican could mark the coronation in a legal but meaningful way. Well, it certainly got more difficult given that the security minister himself wasn't sure what anti-coronation protests are and aren't allowed. But the overall message is clear. If you don't like it, stay at home and shut up. That's why I'll be printing out a photo of Prince Andrew looking mournful and sticking it in my window. That's a horrible thought. <laughs> Gonna do it. Yeah, I am. The thing is, you know, I live in a place in North London where nobody will. There will be a few wry smiles as they walk past, but I'm not going to have my window smashed. I wouldn't do it everywhere, probably. If you get someone screaming nonce at you and throwing a brick through your window, don't come me looking for help because you have asked for it. Ben, there's a new poll out saying support for the monarchy is at a historic low. What did it find? Um, well, most Britons still do support the concept of a monarchy. The majority do, but... Um, enthusiasm isn't as great as it used to be or was and among different age groups it really does depend so so one example there is a YouGov poll which you know asks them to what extent do you support oppose the UK having a monarch and they mention King Charles III among all Britons it's uh, 57% but among 18 to 24 year olds it's it's 33% and you know th- those the percentage of Britons who don't necessarily feel an overwhelming enthusiasm for the monarchy, or indeed uh, an overwhelming uh, resentment, is, is is rising. It's not necessarily, you know, we're, we're not having a surging Republican feeling in this country. I don't think we're going to get that. I don't know about my lifetime, but uh, for the next te- for the next few decades, it's unlikely to to, to ever reach <laughs> come close to you know competing for a, as a serious political issue. It's just as a country, we, we've gone from being overtly enthusiastic about the institution headed presented led by her late majesty queen elizabeth to 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 a gentleman who who alienated a chunk of britons in the 1990s for 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 uh, uh, obvious reasons and um it's become a bit more of a how would i how would i describe it a bit more of a you know a pop culture pop culture topic for a great many Britons, it's, it's something that you know. How do you feel about Harry? How do you feel about Meghan? And that that that's driven, I think, or or or, or pushed a, a sense of apathy among certain people. Like 
you don't necessarily feel enthusiastic about it anymore, but getting rid of it, most Britons aren't ready to take that leap. And I suspect they won't for a good while, if ever. Perhaps it's no wonder King Charles has invited people to pledge their allegiance to him. All those who so desire are asked to say these words, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law. So help me God. I spent a bit of time pondering this at the weekend and I, I've got thoughts. <laughs> can, we, can we hear them? Oh, you will. <laughs> but Ian, as a long-time admirer of King Charles, oh, I've been longing to ask you, how yeah. do you feel about this? I mean, I couldn't give a fuck either way, obviously. It doesn't mean anything. It's of absolutely zero consequence to anyone. It's not really a thing, is it? Uh, it's a sort of made-up load of nonsense. So they changed, you know, as you, you just read it out, as it will be done in the service. So all who desire is, is the line, which sounds fine. And then there was this press release by the Archbishop of Canterbury, which was intended to show how much more sort of open and modern everything would be. It's not just peers that will be saying this. Be, you know, you can too, if you like. And it used this word invited. And in the word invited, somewhere along the sort of twittery press release, multiple publication lines got turned into asked, which sounds a bit more... You've been asked to come to the it's square sinister. at this time. It's a bit different to you've been invited, to, which is a bit different to if you desire, you can do this. And so very quickly, it sounded like this kind of Gestapo moment where the Prince Charles sort of brigade are going to knock down your front door and be like, shout the fucking words, which it isn't. It isn't that. So I won't be saying it. I imagine very, very, very few people are going to be stood on their sofa in their living room <laughs> chanting the words at the television. It doesn't matter. It's just a load of old nonsense. But why do you think he's chosen to ask people to do this? Because he didn't have to. No, what I mean, he clearly would have just thought, oh, this is a nice modern, you know, we're going to change it all up. It's not going to be just the peers, it's going to be everyone, everyone can say it a bit. And they, they, they probably won't have thought about it. And they probably wouldn't have thought, I wonder if this specific sequence of events with mild changes in the words could then be misinterpreted in a very aggressive way on social media for day after day at a time. And no, maybe they although should, arguably, maybe, they should maybe somebody should... Um be advising them on how social media works because it's not entirely surprising is it <laughs> no but well then but then i would have thought you would aim it at the archbishop of canterbury i mean you know fine it's whatever they're not going to take any real any real penalty from it maybe they'll be happy about it because then lots of people would have heard about it they wouldn't have heard about it otherwise who knows it doesn't matter it's just a nothing because, you know, part of me thinks, oh, God, this is a bit embarrassing. And part of me thinks, come on, he's king. He ought to really be able to tell me to do this stuff. Own it. <laughs> Own it, Charles. What's the point of having a king if they can't order you? Yeah, me? all those who That's so desire. I'm sorry. You know, you're my king. If you're going to make me do this, you're going to make me do this. Show your authority. <laughs> Don't just piss about asking me. But there, were, there were many ways that I saw this episode going. But <laughs> Ros Taylor shouting, own it, own it, Charles, was not one of them. <laughs> Anna, originally this oath would have been pledged by Charles's liege lords. The... <laughs> 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 sorry, the whole concept is so... Ridiculous these days. The aristocrats on basically on whom he depended for yeah. support in order not to be kicked out. Should we be flattered or concerned that he wants our allegiance instead? I mean, we shouldn't be concerned because it is a load of meaninglessness. Um, you know, the, the fact that he's even had to clarify that it's optional. I mean, no shit. There's not going to be people sitting, watching through the door. Are you pledging your allegiance? It's, it's a little bit of, ups, of ceremony sort of updated for today. Um as part of the, the ceremony, he's going to make various promises to us as subjects or, or whatever we want to describe ourselves as. Um, and then we're meant to parrot something back if we want. We don't have to. Um, 
you know, the fact that it's being spread out to all of us rather than some folks uh, dressed in mink is probably a nice touch. Um, but it reminds me of the things, the words that you have to say when you're in brownies as a child. I promise I will do my best and do my duty to God and serve the Queen and help other people and all of that. It's a load of old words to join a club if that moves you to do so. And who is it for? I guess all of the people who are lining up now, camping out. I cannot possibly understand what comes over people who want to do that, but there is a big portion of people in this country who are mad (laughs) about the monarchy and are currently camping out to see him. They will find something in this, so fine. Um, You know, sometimes you go to a wedding or something and I actually want, I once went to um, a wedding of a Jewish friend where as part of the ceremony, there was a toast to the queen and toast to the state of Israel. Did those toasts mean anything to me? No. Did I do them anyway because I cared about the people that I was celebrating? Yes. And so it's a little bit like that, I think. There are people who really want to do it. For the rest of us, stop worrying about it. Just ignore it. Yeah, I can confirm that there is a new cub badge which um, has to be sewed on. Um, uh, confirming that you are celebrating uh, the the king's coronation and committing yourself to him, so yeah, that 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 thing has not gone away. Uh, but it feels as though he's trying to inject a solemnity into the sort of rituals that we now mark in quite a kitschy way. I mean, is he trying to reclaim the monarchy from Paddington and the bunting <laughs> and the corgis and the platy-jubes and, and all the that? The tea towels, um, mm. yeah. Or to put it another way, I suppose he's trying to return a sort of sense of order and propriety. Charles has created this ceremony and apparently refers to his sort of marriage to the country. He's that kind of austere figure. Um, and that gives, gives us a sense, I think, of sort of who he is and what he wants to be as, as king. Um, so that this is a similar sort of process. You know, he's saying this is about tradition. It's about process. And it isn't about corgis and marmalade sandwiches. And, and I guess, dare I say this, is not about laying flowers at the gates of Buckingham Palace. Oh, look where she's gone. Yeah, sorry, yeah. everyone. But that's <laughs> yeah. the man. He's, the, he's a man of solemnity, solemnity, of tradition, of order, and um, he's not particularly cerebral, nor is he very witty, and he definitely wouldn't... Well, I don't get the sense that he would ever have done the Bond or Paddington things that the Queen... Mm. gaily went in mm. for no I don't, I, so, don't, I think he much preferred if you'd if, if you'd say this oath rather than bringing a jar of marmalade and putting it outside Clarence yeah. house it's so that's of, what, yeah. I mean that's where we are now and that's that's the monarchy we have now yeah and how people feel about that well I'm sure we'll see in about two years when it's bedded in a bit I always like how unhappy he looks <laughs> he does look like he's suffering for us in many ways doesn't he yeah yeah no he just he just looks really sad all the time and I just think that's just Well, fantastic. now you've gone to a really difficult place. I, do, I mean, who would want to be born into any of that? Well, exactly, exactly. Mostly that's it's, it. That's why they all look so fucked up. Yeah. Because it just looks like a dreadful way to spend a life. Ian, what is the Public Order Act that's just been put into practice? Oh, good. We're actually going to talk about something that matters. <laughs> okay. Yes. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, no, let's do that. So this past, I uh, got Royal Assent on, oh, fuck me. Sorry, the, the, the four-day week has completely boggled me. So I think it's Tuesday. Almost instantly, letters started landing with Republic, which is the sort of anti-monarchy group. And we already know the threat of this legislation to climate change activists. 
And the letters were saying, look, these are the penalties if you do the following things. So one of them is if you attach yourself, if you lock on in any way, which obviously ostensibly is about chaining yourself, you know, to prevent traffic or whatever, but also includes if you're locked on to another human being, for instance, by locking arms or just by holding hands, okay? And you cause serious disruption. Now, serious disruption, the last time we saw that phrase was in the policing bill, this Pretty Patel's piece of d- disastrous draconian horror. And there, they gave the Home Secretary the power to be able to just define disruption whenever they fucking like using a statutory instrument. That's funny because the Home Secretary did indeed come out just a few days ago and redefined uh, serious disruption to include walking slowly. At a given moment when you're on a protest, okay, which gives you an idea of just how elastic it is. This time, they've actually bothered to define it without just being entirely responsible to the Home Secretary's whims. And yet they have defined it by anything above minor inconvenience to someone going about their day to day life. That's what that's now with the legal definition of serious disruption as it applies to this bill. Now, that, of course, could be almost anything could be that. So if you holding hands with someone else causes anything other than minor, you know, minor um, getting in the way of someone's day-to-day activities, you can go to jail for, uh, for 12 months. That's, that's the sum result of the bill. Um, the other aspects of it are uh, this disruption prevention orders, which are like sort of pro- protester asbos, where once you've been, you know, found to have committed these crimes, you have to commit two of them. Then they can put you under surveillance. They can control your access to the internet, what you do with the internet, the people that you socialize with. Now, that was going to be much worse. Before the Lords got involved, that was going to be, you didn't even have to be convicted of any offenses for them to impose these things. And they could put a 24-7 GPS tag on you. The Lords got rid of the tag and the Lords insisted you had to have committed two offenses over five years in order to receive this. But it's still very draconian. Now, the key thing with all this is, right, so when you listen to that Tom Tugendhat interview on Radio 4 this morning on Wednesday morning, you know, he was, we were like, what can you do and what can't you do? He's like, well, obviously, I don't want to get into the details. I was like, well, maybe you fucking should get into the details, given that you're talking about a significant infringement on our freedom of speech and our right to protest but they don't want the details because they don't really want people knowing what it is that they can and cannot legally do and you can see by the virtue of the words that i've said about holding hands and the inconvenience that you'd never really be able to know if you're breaking the law or not right and that's what they want they want the chilling effect and part of the way of getting it is sending these threatening letters from the home office to groups that have got no history of violence whatsoever that are not doing anything out that you would be concerned about that are simply expressing their republican values during the coronation week so i think you get a very good indication of what the legislation does and what it is intended to do speaking of republicans um hannah there were suggestions that charles would slim the royal family down when he became king Mm. and so far that hasn't happened he may have just been waiting till he's got his feet under the table or the crown on his head as it were but does it need to happen i think it does partly because apart from you know we see all the nutty royal watchers on tv and you can easily feel like they represent a majority of the country but they don't and um most people i think have a view sort of akin to mine really which is i just don't really care don't have a strong Mm. view but you know don't know who they are really apart from the the major public figures but you know couldn't tell you anything about Princess Anne before the funeral, to be honest. My mother's appalled by that, but I don't really know who she is. And so I think, but they do probably mostly share a common view that it probably just needs to cost less. Um, because it's it's a large undertaking financially for the state. So slimming down is the best way to deal with that. And you know, settling in first to avoid a backlash from the strong royalists is probably a good idea, but I think it does need to happen to meet the expectations of the majority of the country. 
Ian, the standard riposte to people who want an elected head of state is that it would be divisive. And Matthew Dancona went down this route very uh, heavily this week when he said that uh, if you want an elected head of state, you better start getting ready to, uh, for President Boris Johnson. How do you feel about that now? Does that argument stand up? Well, I, as you know, I strongly believe in that argument. I think that argument is absolutely spot on. And I think mm. it's completely reasonable to raise the Boris Johnson. And, and I am so aware of... I, you know, when, when you hold a position, especially an unpopular minority position, it's so annoying when there's just one gotcha question that people always come back with. And it's really tiresome. But the thing is, it's a gotcha question for a reason, which is that if you don't pick them this way and you do pick them democratically, we surely know where this is going. Like We must be able to see the kind of people that are going to run and how that's going to work for this basically ceremonial, symbolic position as sort of head of the... I mean, there is no way that doesn't turn into a culture war dogfight. And whichever way we feel about what we have now, that this is surely far superior to Nigel Farage versus Gina Miller to become Queen oh, of England. Christ, like. yes. And finally, I have to ask. <laughs> That's quite a visceral reaction. From that. <laughs> yeah. Because you're a fan of Charles's dress sense. Yes, he's extremely well dressed. Yes. and sad. I don't know if I mentioned the sad, but I think I think to really dress well, you have to be very sad. I would say more lugubrious, really, isn't it? I wouldn't say exactly so, but maybe I'm... Anyway, but should he have gone for the military uniform over the ermine and the breeches? Because I'm not sure that was the right thing to do. Again, couldn't give a fuck. However, <laughs> I love the way the, the stuff... Because I looked up the names of it, the various robes and God knows what. I mean, the, the, I think it's the robe is called the Super Tunica, which is... <laughs> it's a Super Tunic, but in a kind of Latin kind of, I think, way, as far as I can tell. And then also the sword belt is called, it's called the Coronation Girdle, which I feel like I'm going to need to use in my day-to-day life all the time. It's like, fuck you, that's my Coronation Girdle. How dare you slag it off. It's got troubling wedding night overtones. Well, there's something he has to do with a spoon, which I'm not quite sure about, but frankly, it sounds dodgy. I would just just for the record, if BBC have like a red button function where I can watch the coronation with your commentary, Roz, <laughs> I am a fucking hundred percent there for it. As I speak, we're just hours away from the local elections. They're the first big test of whether Labour's polling lead is reflected on the ground. And of course, the first big verdict on Rishi Sunak's premiership. Even though I know, I know people aren't actually voting for Sunak or anyone in Parliament at these elections. Turnout is generally pretty low at the locals and it may fall further now that voters need ID in order to vote. Ben, obviously people should vote for the party they want to run their local council. I mean, but the abject state of mind, which has been controlled by Labour since forever and always will be, suggests that council performance has actually very little to do with how they cast their votes. What have you learnt about the way local government works since you started campaigning? Yeah. So your initial point that, yes, turnout is normally low. Um, On average, uh, turnout is around three in ten. Three in ten of those eligible eligible to vote. That includes EU citizens pre twenty twenty. By the way, uh, that that's the share share of Britons who normally come out to vote. Three in ten. If it's in places like St Albans or even areas where the Greens put in an effort, it can be as high as forty fifty percent. You know, local campaigns can have an impact, but by and large, it is the national narratives that shape things. The cost of living remains the highest issue to all voters, and it, and it, and it is as high 
in a local government election, even though local government finance isn't really related to the cost of living. It's just, well, there's council tax, but the primary driver of inflation and prices isn't local government based, right? You know what I mean? So yes, it is na- It is national narratives that drive it. And um, But local issues can have an impact and owing to a low turnout, local personalities can have an impact. Imagine this. Um, let's say you live, at, you, you live in London, all right? And your, your average ward, your average area is 17,000 people, okay? Or rather 11,000 voters, 17,000 people. On average, what's that? 30% of the people turn out there. That's, you know, four, 5,000, I suppose, three, 4,000 people who turn out. And of that four or 3,000, you've got 200 or 300 of those who are voting people based on personality. I've, I've done average, I've, I've, I've had a look around to find like, you know, candidates that outperform their party. And, and by and large, that means in elections where there's 4,000 votes cast, that's 300 or 400 votes for the person, for the personality. That, that has, that, that's big, you know, when it's like, you know, uh, straight Tory, Labour, marginal seat, that, that can make all the difference. So in, in local council elections, independents, personalities, you know, they play a much greater role and uh, um, much greater than in, you know, Westminster elections. You know, remember 2019 when all the uh, independent group lot tried to stand or, or on their own banners and not one of them got close because the turnout's higher. It's almost like in a general election, people are voting on national issues. Local issues aren't as key in local elections. It's not necessarily local issues. It's just the personalities that matter more. On the other hand, you've got things you never used to have, uh, issues like low traffic neighbourhoods, um, things like solar farms and all the um, uproar over various housing developments. And those are getting a lot of play these days, aren't they? Do you think they will have an impact on the results in some areas? Uh, not not as much. You know, we had local elections in uh, London last year and they didn't seem to really have much of an impact. What does, this is the thing, we've always had neighbourhood development plans, housing developments being proposed and all the rest of it. And the, if the local councillor smells blood, they will come out very much against it. And my goodness me, they'll win a lot of support because the idea of changing a community often frightens a lot of voters. So putting a stop to local housing developments, putting a stop to changes in your infrastructure, be it roads or whatever, normally gets the most support. This is why independent candidates um, often do well in Surrey, because in Surrey, obviously, there is a chronic need for housing. You know, you're on the outskirts of London. But um, and the local conservatives, Liberal Democrats and Labour, by and large, they are in favour. But that isn't really popular because you are asking already, you know, homeowners to observe and accept changes in their community. And that's why independent candidates do well. So, yeah, that that, that can happen. But mind you, we've, we've been having that for decades. Low traffic neighborhoods are a new thing, but it's just part of that, that, that's that, that, um, what do you call it? Just the chaos, the chaos, the chaos cauldron of local issues that can just drive voters to angrily reject you at the ballot box. There was a sort of quietly furious piece by Matthew Engel in the New Statesman last week, and he's a parish councillor on the English-Welsh borders. And he was writing about how councils had been starved of money and power over the years. Does Labour plan to change that at all if it gets into power? I don't know. This is the thing. that The one thing they recognise, which I think is... is, is uh applaudable is uh, is the fact they recognize we are a ridiculously centralized country all the money is focused in london now, i don't mean that as a slight to london i mean that as a slight to the fact it's all westminster 
It's all Westminster. There was an attempt uh, in Tony Blair's time to devolve powers to these regional assemblies, uh, which uh, Dominic Cummings, uh, uh, once, once upon a time, rallied against. But the thing is, these regional assemblies never got off the ground and never got accepted by the voters because they never had any money to back them. This is the thing. If you want to talk about levelling up, if you want to talk about regenerating local councils and allowing local councils to you know, have the funds to build council houses or, 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 or you know, just spend a bit more money, you've got to devolve the money and the powers from Westminster to local councils. I feel it's been very uh, common for... Uh, political parties to talk about devolution of powers but if that devolution is not backed up with money it's toothless it's useless it's not going to really get you anywhere and uh, we've seen it we've seen it in Scotland and Wales with the arrival of the then assembly now senate uh, initial powers little money and now more and more money when you when you open the devolution uh, can it's just going to mean you'll have to accept you will need to back it up with money and I think if Starmer gets in, he it will mean devolution of money, more money for local councils, less for Westminster. Ian, local government used to be a way into getting elected as an MP, but that rarely seems to happen anymore. Why? Oh, it, it happens a bit. Weirdly, the percentage of local party members who cite local routes as the decisive thing that they're looking for in, a, in an MP selection has actually gone up and up and up and up and is by far the thing that they most look for, the quality that they say they're most looking for. It's a bit more complex than that, really. But nevertheless, they say it. And it's kind of true, Lois, when you talk to election organisers, they say, look, you know, if, if you're running to be selected as an MP and you're up against the chair of the local council, you're fucked. OK, like that is the nightmare proposition for you because that person is going to win it. Um, so that's there. I think the reason it seems a bit in decline is um, a knock-on effect of special advisors. Special advisors are that sort of layer between the civil service and the ministerial class in Westminster. And they're by far the people that are most often pushed by the leadership for local seats. They like them. They get on well. They've been climbing up the greasy pole. They're effective. They want them in the operation. They want them in parliament so that they can, if they become prime minister, select them to be part of their cabinet. It's people like Ed Miliband. I mean, well, to be honest, I mean, we were, you know, at one point Ed, when Ed Miliband was facing off against David Cameron, those are just two spads facing off against each other. It was the spads yeah. are completely taken over. Um, and because of that, because the central offices of, of Party HQ pushed the, the special advisors on local areas, there's this whole new type of competition that you have as a local councillor for that, for that, for being selected as an MP. And you have got, I mean, I guess if you're in Labour as well at the moment, you might feel that you could actually do more at a local level than you can sitting on the opposition benches. I hear that about Georgia Gould in Camden, for example, who's a who's a really good council uh, council leader, and everyone thought she would go into Parliament, but she hasn't. And I can kind of see why. This, I mean, there's a bit of that. I think you're still a bit. You've you've got a fundamental problem, which is that councils really have been almost completely neutralised. As you were saying earlier on sort of low traffic neighbourhoods, there are parts that are still functional that are still that still matter. But you know, after the war. The two major things that councils did were housing and education, right? You know, they had a huge amount of housing stock. They controlled how that was used, etc. Now, once right to buy comes off, you know, we lose most of that stock and it's not replenished. That essentially goes away. I mean, for that whole period, you know, the department was housing and local government. There was, no, you know, there's a very, very close connection between these things. That's just kind of gone now. Uh, the second part is education. And education, slowly but surely, central government has just clawed up 
all of those powers bit by bit by bit to the point where last year when the schools bill was published the first 13 clauses of the schools bill had the government saying oh by the way all schools are going to become maintained schools now and maintained schools are going to have the entirety of their policy making decided by statutory instrument not even in fucking parliament let alone local councils just ministers will just do it whenever we feel like including the duration of the school day the curriculum all of the details now that was cool in the end that a bunch of people kicked off about it and the government stripped out the first 13 clauses of its bill and went sorry about that we won't do that again but it gives you an indication of where they think policy making should be taking place and it isn't the local area so you know the, the centralization of power the remorseless centralization means that for people who really want to enact change they usually find themselves aiming for westminster rather than the local council hannah what needs to happen to revive local government i mean does does leveling up actually make it more difficult in a way As Ben sort of hinted at earlier, levelling up is just a load of words. It doesn't mean anything. Um, The funding rounds that were attached to are really complex and they were really poorly handled and um, they basically only ended up further centralising local regeneration efforts and so on. Um, And actually, the most bizarre thing about the entire project is that Gove's department has had the right to manage capital products projects removed from it as part of this (laughs) drive for localism. So it it literally makes no sense at all when you're talking about the words levelling up and localism is irrelevant. Um, What needs to happen, and again, Ben's already described really the problem is that there needs to be funding the money has to be there if you want to make any change whatsoever rather than just provide basic services like bins and so on which it frankly doesn't even have enough cash to do anyway so it's already struggling with the limited powers it already has and if you want to enact any kind of change the cash needs to come with it um but also that's not all i think it there's also needs to be a huge upskilling program uh, councillors need to be paid much more in expenses. Um, We've heard how Ben's been sort of pounding the streets and the sacrifice he's making just to try and get elected in exactly the same ways as you see in Westminster, where we don't have, you know, enough women, um, enough people with caring responsibilities, people from different backgrounds represented. The same is true even more in local government because the sacrifice is phenomenal and for very little return. So um, that, that you need a greater range of talent in there and you need to pay more for that. So it's, it really is all cash if you want to get beyond white retirees sitting there basically blocking stuff, um, really. And I mean, why doesn't this happen? It's because government really just still wants central control. There's, there is that instinct. They just don't like handing it over and they worry very much about a postcode lottery and how that makes, um, you know, the government in power look. Uh, and and to be fair as well, there have also been some big experimental projects that have been a bit of a disaster, like the Barnet Commissioning Council project, where they basically tried to outsource every little thing and it, it was a, a crashing failure and it had to all be reversed. So I think central government is a bit worried when when councils have big ideas as well. But, you know, you've just got to embrace that if you want if you do want localism. Because sometimes it seems like councils just have the power to say no now. I mean, they don't have much cash, they don't have much autonomy, but on the other hand, they do manage to block development quite effectively sometimes. Mm. Is that what people want fundamentally? You know, the power to say no, up with this, we will not put. I, I don't think that's all they want. I think they want more effective... Uh, processes where they can actually be engaged. I mean, yes, there's a lot of saying no, but, you know, the low traffic neighbourhoods one is a good example because they are being enacted despite widespread dissent. So 
they are still going ahead because that's the vision of the local authorities that, that and the councillors there who, who really want to make that happen. Um, so you could argue if you were, um, I mean, I'm, I'm broadly in support of them, but if you if you were an opponent, you could argue that this is not democracy either because in almost every area where that's happened, there's been very significant dissent and it's made absolutely bugger all difference to the process. Um, so I think, for me, I think that one of the main things is that sort of the right people with the right capacities in place and, and that, and you know, avoiding kind of one-party states as well is also really important. Have you ever been to a council meeting? I have, quite a lot. I used to work, I used to be a local reporter. <laughs> so, you know, that was part of my job for a while. I've also covered quite a lot about development in doing housing stories over the years. The, the experience of the pandemic should mean that more people are able to and want to attend and witness those meetings because, you know, they are available online now. But they are really dull and they're really dull because it's the same old people. You know, there's no, it's not really debate. It's the same kind of posturing of the same individuals and uh, that's what needs to change. Have you ever been to a council meeting, Ian? No. No, I, I thought you were going to say that somehow. No. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not, because, it's not because I don't respect them. No, no. <laughs> it's... Um, you know, some of my best friends are local councillors. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I haven't. And they tell you all about what's going on. At, they... at extraordinary length. You wouldn't believe how dogmatic <laughs> and frankly violent they become when talking about planning policy. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Ian, what's yours? Lord's European uh, Affairs Committee released a report this week on... Well, our relationship with Europe, um, which are the sort of things that you would expect from a Lord's Committee on Europe, which is maybe we should be a bit closer and not act like a bunch of hysterical freaks and actually have sort of like a set pattern of forums and for sanctions on Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the last proposal I thought was really interesting, which was they didn't call it this, but it was essentially let's have freedom of movement for the young. So to take the sort of like long visas that you can currently get as a young person to travel to a country and work there and just go, no, it's for the whole of Europe. And, you know, it would last for, let's say, two years or three years or something uh, and to have that as a visa you could get. And you sort of think, oh, that's quite a nice idea. It's the sort of idea that you could imagine a late, like Prime Minister Keir Starmer could, might just go for that sort of thing, a three year young person's you know European visa, which would be called a visa rather than freedom of movement, but would in fact be freedom of movement for young people and would just be a bit of a start of freeing things up. It was a very, very good report, as you would expect. Gosh, that sounds like catnip uh, for mm. our audience. Hannah, how about you? So this is um, some reporting done by HSJ, the Health Service Journal magazine, um, who's been following for some years who is carrying out thousands of NHS mental health appointments, which are being provided external to you know, your GP or uh, psychiatrist at your local hospital, they're, but they're being carried out by 
providers, private providers on behalf of the NHS, paid for by the NHS. Um, and it's through the IAPS service where people can self-refer as well on the on the guidance of their GP. But they're being carried out by pr- practitioners that aren't fully accredited. And this has been something that's been aware, you know, been aware for some time. It, it's important to stress that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not competent, but that they haven't gone through the processes they should have done to prove their competence to the NHS. Um, a couple of years ago, it was tens of thousands of appointments were being funneled through these uh, unregulated practitioners. Now it is reduced to, to thousands, but it hasn't been eliminated despite NHS promises to stop uh, that. Um, and, you know, we've got a massive mental health backlog, particularly with our young people. And if we're just farming them off to people that we can't be sure are the right practitioners to hmm. support them, I think that's, that's really worrying. Yeah. Well, it is World Press Freedom Day um, as I speak. Reporter Sans Frontier put out a report ranking the UK and we have fallen two places to number 26 in the index of world press freedom. And it's interesting because it's quite hard It's quite hard to get a, a sort of unbiased view of how other people see your country and press freedom there. So I was quite in, intrigued to see what they said about Britain. And they pointed out you know, that basically the majority of national newspapers are controlled by just three different companies. So there's not really much media pluralism, certainly in the in the uh, written press and of course this is uh, in the last few months uh the police have started arresting journalists covering protests um especially uh, the environmental protests around um uh, blocking roads and so on which is something that has not happened before and is a quite a worrying new development so it's worth taking a look because it might surprise you to see the state that the UK is in it's not nearly as healthy as we might think it is Stay tuned for the extra bit, exclusively for backers on Patreon. That's after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and our thanks to some of the backers from our huge backlog of loyal and brilliant supporters. And it's a huge thanks and best wishes from me to Tony and Jill Marsh, Carolyn Bailey and Duncan Allen. Hello and thanks from me to Catcher Taylor... Chris Findlay and Lexi Sexton. And finally, all the best from me and many thanks to Martin Southard, Richard Hardman and Veronica Reed. And thanks so much to Ben Walker for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hopefully next time we speak, you'll be a member of Chester Council. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Ros Taylor with Ian Dunt and Hannah Fern. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones, Kasia Tomaszewicz and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. I'm not, let me confess, a big Aerosmith fan. But then they did get together several years before I was born. (laughs) And now I understand that they're finally bowing out after 53 years. Their next tour in September will be their last. But not everyone packs it in when they're still only in their mid-70s. Eight-year-old Joe Biden is running again. Paul McCartney was expecting to have retired by 64, and now he's 80. 80! Let's not forget about a certain 74-year-old man who's just taken up a new role and is still working this weekend. And for all the fuss about over 50s dropping out of the workforce, it turns out that two and a half million people will delay their retirement, according to Legal and General. 
Ian, what's your target retirement date? As I think they put it on your pension statement. I bet I don't know. You know, if you have a pension statement, uh, no, no, there'll be no retiring for 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 me because what I do is incredibly easy and, <laughs> and quite enjoyable. So if you could just reduce it to like you know one bit of writing a week or something, you know, you'd just be like, there's no reason you would ever particularly stop doing that. I don't think. And I'm, well, I'm, ill health. Yes. Okay. fine. So, I mean, I think we're all like potentially going to live a long time and we get excited about the potential to just carry on having an income. I feel the same in this industry, but sometimes it's a bit unrealistic. It's easy to forget when we're young enough to not think about health. Oh, yeah. No. So if there was another question of at what point do you think you'll be physically and mentally incapacitated? <laughs> my, my answer to that would be around 53. But, <laughs> but assuming it doesn't happen, I'll, I'll keep on sort of cracking on. I think. So you have no retirement plans because you're not going to retire. You're not you're not going to sail off into the sunset. You don't you know, there's no. I just think it's a bit of a piss take when your job is basically just sit there and write what you think. <laughs> think like, oh, how hard the labor. I must have a break from this and later like, I know, just fucking. You know, just get, just get on with it. And at that point, there'll be nobody, you know, listening at all. There's only 12 of them now. <laughs> you know, by then it'll be absolutely nothing. But nevertheless, I've just planned to keep on fucking on, really. Yeah, I mean, that is a worry when you're a journalist that, you know, you just basically become too much of an old fart to for, to, to be listened to. But on the other hand, that doesn't seem to happen that very does not much. Seem to be troubling <laughs> this industry right now. No. no. <laughs> I can think of plenty of, yeah, anyway. <laughs> no, no, this is a much better topic right now. Ros, would you like to give us the list? Uh, who who really needs though to bow out public life and you know, spend more time with their begonias or whatever? Are there people who frankly need to move on? Look, I don't strictly believe what I'm about to say, but I just want to put it out there just for the for the shits and giggles. But what what if Adamra did fuck off? That might not be such a bad thing. I don't, and I don't mean die, right? I mean just stop presenting nature programs, okay? Because maybe there could well be... I mean, imagine, is there a more annoying career than being a British nature program presenter who's not David fucking Attenborough? She'd just be like, well, how long have I got to wait? 70 years before anyone's going to allow me to present a program? Like, it's always got to be him. Maybe, you know, maybe actually in the area of nature documentaries, it might be time for some some sort of fresh so what, voices. Chris Packham to get more work? <laughs> <laughs> well, he is 97 next week. I mean, you, you could make a case for it. Uh, you, you do have a point there. Uh, Hannah, there are there are people, you know, like like Asimbra, who still have a lot to offer. Who else would you be sorry to? Who, who would you be sorry to see retire? I think in the in the kind of it's not really public life, but just very visible people, people like Maggie Smith and Michael Caine. They're like they still produce some good work. I mean, Maggie Smith, pretty much everything she does is quite good, really mm-hmm. credible. And they're also they're kind of reassuring faces. <laughs> they're sort of a kind of cultural. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as three pounds a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, what else? Every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.